Turn our attention now to Luke chapter 10. We will pick up where we left off before Easter with a message that I titled, Love That Leads to Life. Love That Leads to Life. I think if most of us were to look back over our lives, we would realize that there are a number of questions that we have spent a lot of time trying to find answers to. For example, some of you are still trying to find an answer to the question, what do I want to do when I grow up? Right? Some of you are still asking that question even though you stopped physically growing a long time ago. Right? Some of you maybe even spend a lot of time answering other questions like, who should I marry? Or which career path should I follow? Or which college should I attend? Or which job should I take? Or where should I live? Or which church should I attend? These are important questions that for us have lasting impacts. And so we tend to pour a lot of energy, a lot of attention into answering these very questions. But as we continue through our study of Luke today, we encounter a man asking a question that has impacts that last far beyond any of those other heavy questions that we may tend to pour so much energy and attention into answering. In fact, this man asked Jesus a question that had consequences that would never end. And the question he asked is a question that we, too, must be sure to consider and to seek to answer. Because the consequences of this very question for us are like they were for this gentleman. Eternal. And by God's divine providence, the answer to this question speaks to the reason why we as a church did what we did yesterday as we went out into the community to love our neighbors. The answer to this question is why we, in our vision, through what we have designed as a leadership team, what we have bound to as a church, that this vision that we have for every individual of being found, formed, fired, filled, and flowing, as you see these Banners hanging over your head. The, the reason why the ultimate objective for anyone who would be engaged in this congregation, that, that anyone who encounters Christ through this fellowship, the, the reason that flowing is on the end of this is because the chief objective is not that we build a big body, that we build a bunch of big buildings and a large gathering. The chief objective of the church is that we would be flowing God's riches into the lives of others. And so that's where we, as a body, are striving to grow too. And so if you're able, stand with me now that we might honor the reading of God's Word from Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. And a lawyer stood up, and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? 
How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Here is the reading of God's word for today. This is a simple exchange between Jesus and one man who, verse 25, simply identifies as a lawyer. Now, that doesn't mean that he was broadcasting commercials on the Jerusalem News Network saying, if you've been injured by a donkey at work, call the law office of blah, 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 right? No, in Jesus' day, there was a different sort of lawyer that carried out work in the nation of Israel. This man was a Jew, and and the Jews in Jesus' day were passionate about the law of God. When we talk about the law of God, we're just talking about what God had revealed in the Old Testament, what they held together. They would refer to the first five books of the Bible as the law of Moses. But there were often times that they would speak just in general of the law to include the prophets and include the historical books of the Old Testament as well. But they were very passionate about this law. And we've talked in our study through Luke about the scribes who had this literal job of inscribing God's word, of writing copies of God's word so that they might be relayed to other individuals. Well, among that tribe of scribes, those individuals entrusted in copying God's Old Testament Bible for his people, were the lawyers. And these lawyers were focused specifically on the law of Moses given by uh, God to the nation of Israel. And so these lawyers had this job of ultimately interpreting God's law for the people. That's what you can think of when you think of a lawyer in this context. And this lawyer, undoubtedly with a rich knowledge of Scripture from the time that he spent reading, the time he spent interpreting the law, For other individuals, this lawyer now rises up while Jesus is teaching to put Jesus to the test, according to verse 25. Now, a lot of Bible scholars that I've read believe this guy was being an antagonist of Jesus, as though he wanted to trip Jesus up by giving him a test. Well, that's certainly possible, as Jesus really didn't have a great reputation with the lawyers of his day. As a matter of fact, back in Luke chapter 7, verse 30, we read that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They were rejecting, ultimately, what Jesus was teaching about how John the Baptist had called them to repent. They were not willing to repent, and so they rejected this message. And then later, in Luke chapter 11, verse 46, we're going to encounter Jesus saying, Woe to you lawyers as well! For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So there's a good bit of hypocrisy amongst this group. There's a good bit of clout that they might have had as they were laying burdens on other individuals so that they now stood in danger of losing because Jesus is growing in his ministry. Jesus is winning individuals to the ultimate gospel of the kingdom. And so perhaps there is a manner in which this lawyer is stepping forward to challenge Jesus. 
And I'll also say that in a general case, it's wrong for us to test the Lord in a way that assumes we know the created order of things better than he does. And that, and that his answer better align with our understanding of things unless he be found wrong. But I do think it's possible that this lawyer had simply heard about Jesus' miracles and teaching. And so he was simply trying to evaluate this young upstart rabbi to see what he was made of well the test that this lawyer gives to jesus has only one question it's here at the end of verse 25 teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life and from this exchange i want to share with you five observations about that very question what shall i do to inherit eternal life Here's the first observation. This is an important question to ask. Of all the other questions I mentioned earlier that we spend our time trying to answer, this one takes the cake. Most decisions we make have their benefits rendered null and void when we take our last breath here on earth. But when we seek to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We're dealing with a question that has potential benefits or potential consequences that have no end. And my friends, I hope you're asking this question. I hope you're not living your life focusing on everything but this question and simply either trying to avoid this question or optimistically hoping for the best when it comes to this question. And so the the first thing I want you to contemplate is have you personally dealt with this most important question? Have you asked yourself, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because whether you've dealt with this question or not, the God who made you has revealed that every man, woman, boy, or girl will live eternally in one of two destinations. You'll either spend a blissful eternity in the very presence of God, enjoying His favor forevermore through eternal life, or you'll spend eternity separated from Him in the second death, which will be a conscious existence filled with with torment there is no in between you're either you're either headed for an eternity with your maker in heaven or an eternity apart from him in a place called hell the bible makes that so clear and so this is an important question for us to ask this is not a question to put on the back burner while we deal with the things that are wrapping up our time here on earth this is a question to prioritize This is an important question to ask. That's the first observation about this question. Here's the second one. There is an anointed Savior who answers. Whatever we may say about this lawyer, one thing good that we can say about him is that he took his question to Jesus. And Jesus never shied away about talking about eternal life. We saw a few weeks back, for example, how he told his disciples, anyone who wishes to come after me, must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we talked about coming after Jesus means ultimately going where he is going. His trajectory, my friends, was for heaven. And as he called for individuals to ultimately follow him, he's calling them to eternal life through those very words. 
And then after that, we encounter him speaking of woe to the cities of Galilee that had rejected him. The words of eternal life were often found on Jesus' lips. And he performed many miracles to show the authority that he had to pronounce these words as God's representatives. Slowly, his disciples came to realize that he was the anointed one, the Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king, all bundled up in one, this promised Messiah of God who would deliver his people and lead them into God's eternal promises. And we know even more of this story than the lawyer did because that lawyer, what he did not have the opportunity to view yet at this point, had not yet come to realize that this eternal life speaking teacher would soon endure harsh death on a cross, followed by a hasty burial in a grave, and ultimately would rise victorious over death and the grave and sin. Well, here in this church, we worship Christ because he is God's proven champion. And if there's anyone who's going to, who we're going to turn to in order to answer this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Surely Jesus, our Savior, is the one that we will seek. And yes, there is an anointed Savior who answers. That's the second observation about this important question. Here's the third one. The answer is consistent with the law of God. When the lawyer asked Jesus this most important question, Jesus turns the tables and he put the question back to the lawyer. And so in verse 26, we read, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Now, Jesus didn't ask this lawyer, what do the most popular preachers that are now thriving in the culture have to say about that? He didn't say, how do the Republicans or the Democrats interpret that he didn't ask what are the leading scientists of our day saying about that he didn't ask what are the circumstances in your life right now telling you about that no when Jesus as God's anointed savior wanted this man to know how he could inherit eternal life he pointed this man to the very word of God And friends, there are factions of so-called Christianity in our day that present Jesus as though he came to contradict what God had revealed in times past, as though God had somehow changed his mind on what is necessary to inherit eternal life. But hear me on this, my friends, and hear me well. Jesus didn't come to change the requirements of God's law. He came to fulfill those requirements if you want to know how you can inherit eternal life the answer for you is not to reject the bible and just to hope that jesus this ethereal jesus who has no substance beyond what you imagine him to be in your mind to hope that that empty jesus is going to save you do you want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life well jesus pointed this man to god's written word jesus pointed this man to the bible Jesus says, what is written? And how do you know what is written? How is it that you and I know what is written? We read, right? Or if you can't read, you at least put yourself in a place where you can hear God's word read. 
And that's why Jesus asks this man, how does it read to you? Because God's word ultimately reveals the truth of eternal life. And so I just want to ask you, how do you read God's word? How does it read to you? Or or maybe a more pointed question would be, are you reading God's word? I've talked with a few of our men here in this church over the last few weeks about my personal preaching strategy and a a concern that I have. In, In only about three and a half weeks, I will have been blessed with the privilege of serving the Lord here in this body for two years. In those two years... We are now one and not quite yet a half books into the preaching ministry that I have here. It's a slow and tedious sort of pace. And so as I was talking to these guys here for my body, you know, I was just describing for them, you know, I have a little bit of a concern that I'm never going to get an opportunity to preach some of the great truths of the Bible. I'm never going to have an opportunity to speak that into the hearing of the people who gather here on this place And these men kind of rallied around just to give me a word of encouragement, a word of affirmation to say, what we see is a passion for knowing God's word in the preaching and teaching that you undertake. And that is educating for others that we might know how to approach the word of God on our own. And so my encouragement, my friends, is to seek out the whole counsel of God. If you're expecting me to be able to preach through all of it, I will not be able to. But I hope that you see that I have a love for God's Word. This is my very lifeblood. This is the source of eternal hope for me. And so I treat it cautiously. I seek to understand it. I seek to apply it. And friends, I want the very same thing for you, I hope that you are reading God's Word. I hope that you are seeing a modeling and understanding what it, what it means to dig deep into His Word and to seek to live for His glory because it all should go to Him, my friends. He is the one who deserves all the glory, all the praise, all the honor. And I am just glad that I have the opportunity to be a servant of Him. I want you all to know His Word. Not just the parts I'm able to preach, but all of it. I want you to cherish and mind His truths. But you're only going to experience the full richness of that if you are regularly in God's Word outside of this place. So please, old people of God, cherish and read and apply God's Word. The Word contains the answer to what we must do to inherit eternal life. And the answer is consistent with the law of God. That's the third observation about this important question. Here's the fourth. The answer is consumed with a love for God. When the expert of God's law tells Jesus what he's discerned from God's law about what he must do in order to inherit eternal life in verse 27, Jesus replies back to that lawyer by saying to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Okay, so the lawyer, in his interpretation, got his interpretation right. And what does he say in verse 27 when he gets it right? Or to say it another way, what is the summary of God's law about what a man must do to inherit eternal life? Well, there in verse 27, we see the summary starts out with the truth that a man must be consumed with a love of God. 
or more specifically, the right answer from the lawyer acknowledges, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. So do you want to be saved by keeping God's law? Do you want to inherit eternal life purely by what you do? Then there you have it, my friends. There's the formula. You must love the Lord your God with all these things, all your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind. This lawyer apparently thought that he was loving God perfectly because he honed in not on that part, but on the second part about loving his neighbor as himself as he asked Jesus, who then is my neighbor? He apparently thought he had all of his bases covered. He apparently thought that he had loved God up to the standard of the Old Testament law with this all-consuming sort of love. But my friends, I can tell you he did not. I can tell you that none of us have. Let me just ask you, do you dare to pretend that you have lived up to God's standard in the law? If so, let me ask you, has your heart been all-out consumed with the Lord today? That is, has every motive that you've had behind every action that you've, been, that you've taken here on this day Fueled by a heart for a loving God. Or how about your mind? Sure, you may have thought about the Lord today, but but have all of your thoughts been aimed at Him? The reality is, if all of us were to even limit the time span of consideration down to just the last minute, we probably don't live up to the law's high demands for us to do this thing on our own. If what I must do is love God, this way, by my own power, then I am hopelessly destined to fail and I will not inherit eternal life. If my performance is the basis for eternal life, then I am hopelessly bound for hell. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Here's what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21 and following. He said, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. You see, the law wasn't designed to give eternal life. It was designed to show you that you can get eternal life not on your own, not by what you do, but by one who has come to do those things for you. This man was asking, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking the wrong question. If the law can't give us eternal life, how can we then receive eternal life? Well, Paul goes on in verse 22 to say, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Justified. That's that word that appeared in our passage today. Do you remember where it showed up? It shows up at the end. After this guy summarized the law and summarized the demand of what God has to eternal life according to his law. And then we read that seeking to justify himself this man then asks a follow-up question 
Luke shows us that this man wants to justify himself. He wants to declare himself right. He wants to, he wants to pronounce himself to be in a right standing with God by the very things that he does. And my friends, you can't do that. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot declare yourself right with God by what you do. How are you justified? The law shuts us up in sin so that we could be justified by faith. The law and our inability to keep its high demands point us to Christ because he has kept the righteous requirements of the law for us. In him, by faith, we obtain righteousness. But it's an alien righteousness, my friends. It's a righteousness which is not our own by our default nature. It's a righteousness that he has bought for us. If a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. Verse 22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that this promise could ultimately come through Christ. And then Paul goes on in chapter 4 of Galatians to say, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, Christ was born in flesh as a man under the law and fulfilled the obligations of that law. Why? So that we, through his sacrifice, by binding to him in faith, by entrusting our lives to him, might receive eternal Life. We might be adopted sons and daughters. And my friends, you know what an adopted son or daughter has? An inheritance. And what is it that this lawyer is asking? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you want to inherit eternal life? Then turn away from your own efforts to do it on your own and entrust your life to Christ. Because he, my friends, has paid the way. He has borne the curse for us. He has fulfilled the obligations of the law. And then he sends his spirit into our lives, crying, Abba, Father, a loving call to our God. He enables us to render to God what we could not render on our own, this supreme devotion, this supreme love that flows as a result of the grace that God has granted to us and so we become heirs in Christ and this lawyer needed to be brought down you see but before you inherit eternal life you must crash upon the shores of your own righteousness and trust your life to Christ the law handles the crash and Christ handles the rescue this man thought that he was okay, but he needed to take a crash upon God's law to understand that he was not sufficient on his own. Through the law, he could not be saved. And yes, the answer is consumed with a love for God, but finally, the answer compels us to love like God. The lawyer got it right that we must love God totally in order to inherit eternal life. And that's what the Spirit enables us to do. But the summary of what the law requires goes on. For you must also love your neighbor as yourself. And ultimately when we're saved, the joy of the gospel ought to compel us, my friends, to love like we've been loved. 
The joyful hope that we found in our bankrupt state through the gospel should create in us a love for our neighbors, which reflects the love that we've received. The Holy Spirit's presence in our lives is what enables us to do this very thing as well. There's nothing we can do to inherit eternal life, but that doesn't mean that we should abandon doing what God desires for us to do. No, it means that we should trust as we do and let the gospel fuel us up for our doing, for our loving, for our pursuit of what he's called us to do. And the Bible gives a consistent testimony on this. Good works will not earn you eternal life. But those who have eternal life will practice good works. And that's why we bind together as a church to love our neighbors, my friends. Where else beyond the church can you imagine such an awesome turnout like what we experienced here yesterday for a group of people who gather together for causes that cost them much but earn them nothing? Try this out. Go to your workplace tomorrow and tell the president of the company, hey, let's have a day of service where we'll plan 10 different projects and we'll cover all the expenses and we'll get nothing in return. Or tell your coworkers, hey, let's take a day without pay to do more work than we normally do. In most cases, the organizations that you might be a part of would think that you were crazy. But you know, when the leadership of this church and I got together and we talked about establishing this day of service so that we might show the love of Christ to others, nobody in the flock kicked back at us when we started that trend last year. And when we brought it up again this year, nobody said, you know, that was just too much for us last year. Why might that be the case? Well, we, as members of Christ's body, have been rich in the body. We've In the Bible, we've been steady on the gospel. We've been filled up with God's truth that we are loved with a love that is undeserved, a love that is costly, a love that has gone to great extremes. And so it is no risky venture for us to love our neighbors with costly, undeserved love because we realize that we have been recipients of costly, undeserved love because of what Christ has done for us. We love because he first loved us, my friends. And so the end goal for every believer who is involved in this fellowship is that we would be flowing God's riches into the lives of others. It is no burden for us to freely give of our lives to others. We may give until it hurts. We may give until we find ourselves in peril. We may lose our fame and fortune, but we cling to something that is greater, that shall never be taken away. For ours, my friends, is eternal life. This is God's gift to us by grace, through faith. So let each of us love out loud. Let us love until we're empty. For God's eternal storehouses are filled to the brink for us. And praise God, we'll never exhaust the storehouses of his love for us. That's why we celebrate the gospel by going and serving others. That's why we love our neighbors. Not so that we can earn God's eternal salvation, but because he's so richly given it to us by grace. 
We're going to celebrate the opportunity to do this very thing, the opportunity to love our neighbors here with just a few final testimonies of how God has worked through those who did go out uh, in service yesterday. But before we do that, I want to close with a word of prayer. And then Brother Daryl Carter is going to come and introduce those who are giving their testimonies here today. Would you pray with me? Father, your grace has been rich in our lives. We thank you that your grace sent Jesus to bear the penalty we deserved, to live the righteousness that we could not produce.